0: Hello and welcome to BGS English Revision Podcast. I'm here with Miss Monarchus. Hello. And I'm Mr Forster and we're going to be talking about our final extract question on Othello today where we're looking at a passage from Act 5, Scene 2, the final scene of the play. Um, so there is of course, like with all of our episodes, a handout which you can download um, uh, in there, it should be in the, in the information at the, at the bottom of the podcast whether you're listening to it on Spotify or on Apple. Um, do click on that now. Make sure you have the sheet. Download it, because then you can make notes in it as you listen. All the key vocabulary will be on there. The question will be on there, as along with our kind of bullet point notes and and the structure of our piece. So download that now. You got it they've done it Woo-hoo. so and um, the question what's the question we're looking at today
1: so um today's question is one of those classic um CIE questions which you'll probably be used to by now which is how does shakespeare make this a disturbing moment in the play um and so that needs to be your focus although do remember that just repeating the word disturbing every other sentence is not going to answer the question you're looking for evidence and ideas about what exactly it is that is disturbing. And why that. is it disturbing? Why is it disturbing? How does it fit in with what's happened before and what's about to happen? What's actually happening on stage that would disturb us as an audience? And
0: perhaps even thinking more specifically about whether something might be more disturbing now than it would have been for an early modern audience, particularly in yes. the feminist reading of this play, as we'll talk about later in this podcast. There are things that specifically contemporary audiences now find much more uncomfortable than perhaps Shakespeare's early audiences might have done absolutely but we'll come back to that later on so the first thing really is that kind of message we always have which is start by looking really carefully at the question start by breaking down that question thinking what does it mean so we're not simply saying one disturbing thing is this another disturbing thing is this we're actually going through what precisely is disturbing about it and why is it disturbing yeah which Um,
1: which means looking really carefully always at the extract and making sure that you have some ideas and comments and quotations from across the extract and thinking about how it builds to the place where they end the extract which is won't be a whole scene but is obviously a bit that yeah. they've chosen because they know it's significant
0: and realistically in 45 minutes most people have about time to do kind of three main sections of their yeah. essay an introduction probably three points because super quick maybe four um but most people it's about three so we divide in our structure into three and we have kind of split it up around um the dramatic irony of desdemona's reaction to othello's intent Um, Othello's power over his wife, this disturbing power of his wife, and then we're going to finish by talking about the language that he uses actually to frame his murder, the the, the metaphors that are running through it. But often, um, if in doubt, with a structure chronologically can always work. Yeah, just Um, make
1: sure that you don't run out of steam, um, because a really detailed analysis of the first half of the extract is not going to be any good. You need to have some things about how it develops and changes and and what's happening at different moments in the extra. But yes, absolutely, you you can do um, a decent chronological analysis because what they're really looking for is that kind of analysis of, of language and then, um, and, in what's happening, and then your right, interpretation. The and, interpretation. And that's why I think their questions are open ended. They're like that for a reason, because they want to give you the space to have some thoughts and ideas.
0: So, should we get crank? So, this Let's. is Act 5, Scene 2 is the final scene of the play, and in your revision, it's well worth just actually doing a bit of testing of yourself of what happens in each act. Not necessarily each scene, but being really confident, because one of the top skills that, that high level candidates often have is the ability to think, well, how does this. <laughs> Seems stitched into the fabric of the whole play. How, wh- what is it doing? What's it building upon? Yeah. What's it building towards? Because as soon as you realise that this extract, um, where Desdemona wakes up to see her husband standing over her, accusing her of all sorts of things... Um, what happens immediately before this at the very start of Act 5, 16 yeah. 2.
1: And it is, of course, the culmination of everything that Iago's been work- working towards since his first soliloquy um, in Act 1 as well. So if you yeah. get an extract from the end, um, it's perhaps even easier to just kind of dot in the odd reference or echo from something how that's happened earlier changed. on. Yes, how fellows changed. But for
0: me, the crucial thing before we start looking at our thesis and our structures, just to kind of remember. And remember, you'll have a copy of the play with you, so you can look it yes. up if you can't remember.
1: And in fact, always find the page where your extract comes from and just look quickly before what happens
0: because what happens before this moment is that othello um is alone well he's not alone on stage and um, there's the sleeping desdemona on a bed in the center of the stage um and othello gives a soliloquy to the audience where he tells us of his plans to murder his wife and then at this point when we look at the extract desdemona wakes so, it's kind of that that feeds into the, the, what's disturbing because yeah. the question is on what makes this a disturbing moment. That's why it's disturbing that we've just seen him announce his intent his intentions to murder her and that now he's talking to her. And it's yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a strange, horrible moment. And she's at where... a
1: disadvantage in so many ways, but that thing of moving from sleeping to waking is significant yeah. as well. Well,
0: should we start? So, we always start with a thesis. Yeah. Um, what are we doing here? What are we trying to achieve? We are trying to kind of set up the overall direction of our argument. You know, Cambridge, it's mentioned twice in the Mark scheme, they want a personal interpretation, yeah. your own response to the play. So it's really important. It can it can be as short as one sentence, one yeah. or two sentences. I,
1: I think the key thing is, because sometimes people do get tangled up with this, is actually, what's the most important thing that is happening in that extract that they've given you in terms of the play? Yeah. You know, and it might be a relationship thing, it might be Iago revealing something here. It's obviously the fact that the fellow is about to murder Desdemona. And I think if you've got that central peg to hang it on than the other things like perhaps putting in a little bit of context as Mr Forster said the soliloquy of Othello's that we've had just before um and so on um, but it's just something that shows the examiner that you you know why this bit is important
0: yeah. so this is our thesis first question. So the question remember was what makes it a disturbing moment the final scene begins with a disquieting soliloquy in which Othello tries to justify his plans to murder his wife only for Desdemona to wake and slowly realize her husband's murderous intent This moment is truly disturbing because of Desdemona's utter powerlessness as the play lurches inexorably towards tragedy. So it's a very short one, really. The main point I want to set up in the thesis is that this is building towards that final moment, the murder, and that that's that's what's important about this piece. It's the play the murder is inevitable, there's nothing, It's a, a, everything's been set in motion. Yeah. And, does, and what's disturbing is just the powerlessness yeah. of watching Desdemona plead for her life.
1: Absolutely. And that's where you could, you know, again, if you're reaching towards the higher marks, say something about the play as a tragedy that we know from the minute it starts that this is kind of where we're headed. And it is that, that um, inevitability that, partly is a feature of a tragedy there's no way you're going to be able to stop what's yeah. happening it's building
0: towards that cathartic yeah. moment that release of emotions that happens um in the conclusion to the play so let's start the first point we're going to make obviously it's really important that the first kind of sentence of each paragraph again ties back to your thesis reminds the examiner of what it is you're arguing yeah. how you break and it down. has a
1: clarity it's a lot easier for examiners if they can see right from your opening sentence what it is that you're going to focus on
0: so so for the first section of our kind of three-part structure I've kind of written. Initially, it is Shakespeare's use of dramatic irony, which emphasizes the extent of Desdemona's vulnerability in the face of her husband's murderous rage. So you don't always have to tie it to a specific kind of um, dramatic feature or structural feature. In this case, we have dramatic yeah. irony. Well, it's
1: unlikely you're going to write an essay on Othello that won't mention dramatic
0: yeah. irony somewhere. <laughs> uh, uh, you can have a, more, a, a broader topic sentence simply focusing on an aspect of the character. Um, uh, but, but if there is something that's quite bigger, a metaphor that's running through the piece or a particular thing, then that can be a, a focus as well of a topic sentence. So the first thing really that kind of brings me to mind is that opening, isn't it? Have you prayed tonight, Desdemona? Yeah. And she simply says, I, my lord. I mean, it's quite an interesting... Um, opening here because this is you know she this is she's woken up to see her husband standing over her. I mean we could mention the staging, couldn't we? Yes, I think the that staging is really important
1: here because um, I think if you've listened to the um, podcast that Mr Evans and I did on the Willow scene, one of the things we said about that is that you know so much of the action of this play takes place either in a street kind of on the hoof, as it were, or outside in some kind of public areas. So um, the interior scenes, um, the Desdemona and Emilia one, and this one that actually takes Place in a bedchamber with a bed centre stage, which is we were discussing earlier, would have been one of the few props that yeah. an early modern theatre group would have had, too. And so, a very
0: expensive prop yeah. as well, so it clearly has a real significance symbolically on the stage, like showing us that we are no longer in this public world. Yeah. We're, we're, and, and I think one thing that we could start by saying on this paragraph is that actually this is changing the notion of what tragedy is. Traditional tragedies are kind of the fall of a great man. It's kind of falling. It's you know, but this is more like that 20th century notion of domestic tragedy. this kind of interior space, the tragedy of a husband and a wife in this kind of domestic setting. So there's uh, that's the first thing that's disturbing. Because
1: it's it's mentioned later on, isn't it? I can't remember who somebody says. Look at the tragic loading of this this bed. bed, Yeah, Yeah, the 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 bed is very much central in this final scene.
0: So so I think it's worth saying as we analyse these at this opening is that with Desdemona sitting up in bed to see her husband standing over her, that. The physicality of the stage, yes. its stealth, is emphasising uh, his power over yeah. her, isn't she? She was
1: asleep and now she's awake. He's standing up. He's had time to prepare. She hasn't. And I think that opening line is, is quite chilling, isn't it? Because it sounds Almost as though he's sort of you know priest judge jury and executioner all in one. Yeah, it's
0: conflating it's, it's it's conflating the judicial process, isn't it, with the yes. religious last rites? It's kind of mixing the last rites of Catholicism, um, where you know you you have your final confession before you die, um, with, um, with with this kind of judicial process that we're going to talk about later on. But is
1: it also partly because he 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 doesn't want to have her dying? Having not prayed on his conscience either.
0: Yeah, um, um, obviously the first thing that I want to kind of write about here is that the dramatic irony of this is that this is not unusual in the early modern period to pray to pray before bed is not an unusual occurrence no, in, a, absolutely in a deeply not. religious society. And her response shows that this, at the moment, does not cause her fear. She simply says, "I might." Um, this is exactly what we'd expect. And, you know, she's completing his line of blank verse. Um, you know, he speaks, she replies, finishing, that, uh, finishing off his line. You'll see her, her shortened line to his kind of slightly longer line there. Um,
1: and a uh, very clear and simple response. Which yeah. Is...
0: Um, and that's likewise uh, echoed in her second response. When his language starts to become more disturbing, talking about the crime that she might have unreconciled to solicit for it straight, a, a metaphor we'll return to later, she simply says, alas, my lord, what do you mean by that? Again, what's 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 kind of what's disturbing about this for you?
1: I think it's that sense, uh, and again, the the podcast that we're going to record very shortly on the women in the play is this sense that um, something happens to Desdemona about halfway through the play, doesn't it, where she moves from being quite active to being quite passive, and she has no, she can't quite believe what Othello believes about her, and therefore that innocence kind of comes through completely so she you know she has no idea what he's talking about what yeah. can you possibly mean by that
0: and, and what we might want to do here as well is if we want to kind of show off our understanding of the play is make the point that actually in act one it's Iago who has all these soliloquies that we're aligned with his murderous plots whereas here we've been moved to be aligned with Othello's murderous plot he's the character on stage telling yeah. us what he's going to do and and we know even when Desdemona doesn't so this is disturbing this is strange and
1: I, I think also Back to the Othello soliloquy thing, I think it's interesting because I think Iago's soliloquies are sort of designed to persuade the audience, whereas I think Othello's soliloquies are more designed to persuade himself of something that at some visceral level I think he knows is wrong.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think to kind of keep, finish off this first kind of paragraph we might then want to pick up on some more staging things that show Desdemona's yeah. like powerlessness um, uh, you know her realisation that, that the things that make her realise that Othello is being truthful when he talks of killing yes. is when she starts to talk about what he's doing she says I fear you your eyes roll yeah. why gnaw you so your nether lips?" which bloody- comes
1: after the, qu- the questioning as yeah. well I think shows her vulnerability as well some bloody passion shakes on. your
0: very frame we've yeah. got an image here of of kind of of this violent kind of physical response to... Absolutely,
1: which, again, we were talking earlier, weren't we, how in some ways um, we are back to the notion of the moor that Shakespeare seemed to have subverted earlier on in the play when we're presented with noble, um, poetic verse-speaking Othello um, and now there seems to be some sense that the he's reverted of to the stereotype savage moor that the, Elizabeth the an Elizabethan audience that, might have yeah. expected Yeah.
0: So so definitely that this gap between Desdemona's innocent responses and her physical vulnerability in terms of yeah. staging and Othello's kind of visible anger on stage all kind of sets up um this this kind of disturbing um sense of what's going to happen this our powerlessness as an audience to stop this tragic chain of events set in
1: motion and we know as well from you know Act 14.3 that that he's told her to go prepare herself for bed and she's done that in almost quite Mm -hmm. ritualistic kind of way so you know she's in her night clothes as well which again makes her even mm. more
0: vulnerable so i think that leads us quite nicely onto our second paragraph which i think is looking at othello's power so it's the same kind of focus but switching the, the to look at othello because i think and a very simple topic sentence throughout the scene othello has a disturbing power over desdemona yeah which is definitely true so we could start here by thinking about the way in which he controls their exchange doesn't he that her innocent responses to his interrogation. Yeah.
1: In, in the same way, again, just to repeat the same thing, which he's controlled the fact that she is here in this place where he has told her to be and she's followed his instructions. So in a sense, you could sort of, you know, she's put herself in a position where this can happen. Yeah, and,
0: and her imper- his imperatives, like solicit for it straight. Um, then he says, um, do it and be brief. That even the sense that her prayers should be brief, that he says later on, he says, think on thy sins. Um, Peace, be still. Um, his language is defined by commands that just takes away any kind of sense of agency. Um, Control the ability to make decisions that she
1: has. Which I think has been sort of diminished throughout the course of the play as well. So now we see her at her most passive, really.
0: And it's also, it's taking away her voice, building towards the moment when, of course, he will murder her. And the way in which he murders her is he smothers her. He he literally takes away her voice. So in a a, a play that's fundamentally about taking away female voices, it's quite interesting that we see that build up towards his his final murderous act. It's evident in his language here, talking over her, commanding her, silencing her not
1: really listening you know she says no by my life and soul send for the man and ask him she's still protesting her innocence but he's Mm. not you know he has Iago's voice in his head he's no longer listening and also interestingly after you know after he murders um, Desdemona and Emilia comes back in she speaks the truth again and it's only then that he finally hears it
0: um, and I think kind of picking up on that, we might want to look a little bit at the meter, the rhythms of the verse, because um, the, it's kind of a, a stichomythic exchange, which is this kind of fast back and forth. It's a really yeah. useful word to know. It's when characters are uh, rather than speaking in kind of complete lines of blank verse with five beats in a line, saying a big speech, then the next person has a big speech. These short kind of staccato yeah, which, speeches, which really
1: creates a sense of kind of urgency, which you would expect at this moment in the scene when when the murder is about to take place.
0: And, and metrically, what's happening here is um, that they are fin- they are sharing lines of blank verse. So blank verse is iambic pentameter, kind of five beats in a line: da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum. Um, and what's happening here is Desdemona says, "Talk you of killing, I I do." Then heaven. That's all one line, and it, 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 near the opening of the scene, that 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 gives the, the line a pace. The rhythm is pulling us on through the scene as as they talk over one another. It, 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 it's a disturbing kind of pace to the scene, which. Which again highlights Desdemona's utter vulnerability and Othello's power speaking over her again and again and again. Um, I think that's a really important thing. I mean, we see it later on. Think yeah. on my sin, sins, they are the loves I bear to you. He completes um, you know, Desdemona, there's that juxtaposition in that same line between Othello's conception of her sins and Desdemona's focus on love. Um, Othello says, I saw the handkerchief. Desdemona says, He found it then. Um, Desmond says, let him confess the truth. Othello says, he hath confessed. What we have with the, with all of these pairings where one of them completes the line of, that the other's said, we have a, a total kind of they're at total odds. They're speaking uh, uh, at opposite purposes.
1: Well, she doesn't really understand what he's saying, does she? And he doesn't, can't, listen, to he doesn't listen to what she says.
0: And the point you can make is... That so the yoking
1: of the line yeah. makes that even more poignant. That
0: Shakespeare structurally yokes these lines together yeah. in order to make to add to that kind of, again, what's disturbing about
1: this. And I think there's still that sense, you know, we are saying that he doesn't really listen. I think that sense of him being torn, you know, where earlier on, I think my wife, be honest, I think she is not. You know, he says, sweet soul, take heed, take heed of perjury." He still can't help himself but use the language of love, even when he's yeah. about to murder her.
0: Which, again, is disturbing, the language, this, this yes. kind of, um, this kind of, this, this shift. I, I think the other thing I noticed as well is looking at pronouns, because in the early modern period, you was um, a kind of more formal pronoun, a pronoun suggesting distance or respect, Thou was a more intimate pronoun, or one that you'd say to someone subordinate. And if we look throughout this scene, um, Othello uses thou and thy to refer to his wife, and Desdemona uses uses you, you, which you wouldn't expect between a married couple. You'd, You'd expect the intimacy of thou. So there's this sense of hierarchy i think it it reflects again what we said earlier about the physical difference of othello standing over the bed yeah um because presumably she's still in the bed at this point
1: i wonder whether it's also you know a sort of subtle reminder of the fact that you know one of the reasons perhaps this tragedy happens in the way that it does is that they don't really know each other that well <laughs> That their courtship was a fairly fleeting one, that they've not really spent any time together, and that most of the time they've spent together has been in Cyprus. And that
0: each occasion in the play, when they are in bed together, is interrupted. Yeah. So it's a play that's defined by, to the extent that some critics even suggest they don't consummate their yeah. marriage. Um, there's this sense of that the bed is this, this, this place of division um, rather than the place we'd expect it to be of union. And let's remember, of course, the, the marriage sheets, the wedding sheets, have been placed on the yeah, bed. Yeah, and that's, that's
1: really significant. Um, and again, particularly disturbing, I think, even though it's not referred to in this scene, it's something the audience knows,
0: evocative of like yeah. purity, virginity, um, uh, and yet there's this kind of these horrible accusations being said over the marital bed. I think that brings us to our final point, really, in the last couple of minutes, which is just um, the disturbing metaphors running through. Because um, my final kind of topic sentence is that there is, moreover, something truly disturbing about the way in which Othello frames his plans to murder his wife, yeah. and it's this kind of this quasi-legalistic language. Like it's the language of the law courts, isn't it?
1: I think, it's, I think it's the only way in which Othello can sort of square what he is about to do. Because I think, as I said to you before, with the, you know, the, 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 the sweet soul, I think, I think there is that part of Othello that can't quite believe that Desdemona yeah. has done all the things she's accused of. But in his eyes, because of all the things that Iago has shown him, the conversation that Cassio has with Bianca, the handkerchief and so on, and, and there's that soldierly thing, isn't there? To be once in doubt is to be once resolved. He has to yeah. do something. He can't live like this any longer. But what he can't do is listen to either Amelia or Desdemona, who both told him that she's innocent. And
0: when we look at the language. I mean, he talks of her crime. He talks the need for her to solicit to yeah. heaven. He talks of perjury, perjury. twice. Uh, he talks the need to deny each article with oath. Yeah. He calls her a perjured woman. He talks about stoning my heart. It says, Cassio have confessed, the language is all of a judicial process, despite it being an extrajudicial procedure.
1: Yeah, I think because he needs to clothe himself in that language in order to distance himself from what he's doing and to justify it. And again, I think that's, you know, whereas Iago's language in this play feels like something quite natural emanates from him, Othello's language feels like a sort of something that he's borrowed from somewhere else, perhaps because it's not his first language. So he takes, you know, he's talking about love, he speaks in one way and he's talking about this, he speaks in another way it almost feels like the words aren't his own.
0: Yeah, and I think worth, it's also worth picking up on that he's kind of collapsing the difference between the private and public spheres. Yeah, that totally. We expect this language in a law court. At the end of Merchant of Venice, for example, this legalistic language is entirely appropriate to yeah. the law courts of Venice, another place set in Venice. There's nobody else here about. at
1: this point, either There will be later on in the yeah. scene at the moment. It's just him and Desdemona.
0: And in a strange way, the only people that are there are the audience. Yes. That we become part of this proceeding. We've heard his soliloquy, and what's disturbing is that if this, the, the, the bedroom is transformed into a law court and we, by extension, are transformed into the jury, into, the, the peer, into Othello's peers, we're, we're not here aligned with Desdemona. We've not no. seen her thoughts since the Willow scene. We're kind of here aligned with the, the man preparing to murder her. So I think it's, this, for me, is perhaps one of the most disturbing aspects of this scene, that a man who's about to commit murder frames it as a lawful process. Yes.
1: And, and there are, you know, there are precedents for that in history, aren't there? About, you know, what does happen to um, unfaithful women. And unfortunately, still now in certain places and in certain countries, um, I think that kind of resonance is quite powerful. But history suggests that a woman is unfaithful. She does perhaps deserve to die yeah. as a fellow claims and, here. And Christian,
0: his message is not Christian, Christian because um, um, confessing does not bring about any any chance of Of hope or survival for Desmond, he says that um, once you've confessed, thou art to die. That this is this is um, a a pre-made plan, isn't it?
1: Yes, I think it's also interesting as well if you think about um, Othello's last soliloquy um, at the end of the play. You know, in that he is again trying to justify what he's done, hasn't he, to the audience, Mm. so that you know that the way he's written down in history is is not as negative as it might be.
0: One one final metaphor, perhaps for us to look at um, before we get to our conclusion, just aware of time here, is when is, is the way in which of those languages also disturbing because it's so solipsistic, inward looking. He says, "O perjured woman, thou dost stone my heart and makest me call what I intend to do a murder, which I thought a sacrifice. I saw the handkerchief." Um, we've got this kind of series of images here that I think are worth dwelling upon it's often worth in a power of finding something you can really zoom in on and get your teeth into I think this is interesting because first of all the idea of framing his his coming murder as an act of violence not towards his wife but towards himself stoning my heart and stoning being of course a traditional punishment in many cultures for um, an adulterous woman um, uh, here, the punishment he's suggesting is he is feeling the pain that his heart is being stoned when he is preparing to murder her. There's this inward looking that again just highlights in the early modern period just this total vulnerability of women uh, in in this kind of patriarchy.
1: Do you think that that the, the when he says? um uh, which I thought a sacrifice, does that suggest any kind of element of doubt at the last minute?
0: Yeah, perhaps, yeah, certainly. Even though
1: he's utterly set on his course.
0: And the other one, I mean, the other thing I was going to say about it, that is worth suggesting, along with the doubt that it perhaps suggests, is that it picks up on this kind of pagan imagery that runs through the play. In Act 1, I thought I was accused of being a pagan a non-Christian, even though he is, of course, converted. He's accused of being a moor, even though... More is primarily in the early modern period, not a racial characteristic, but a religious characteristic.
1: Well, and also... But here
0: he's, ta- he's, he's talking about sacrifices. And
1: the he's reminder still, of the handkerchief. And, the, you yeah. know, there's magic in the web of it. There's that aspect of Othello's um, ancestry as well that is exotic.
0: And I think this is certainly all disturbing. So really to pull these threads together... Um, in your conclusion what you're trying to do is not simply restate what you've already said what you're trying to do is take the argument further and I think what the final point really here is this kind of metaphor of Desdemona's silencing being the silencing of the female voice we've we've, Desdemona is first silenced by her husband then Amelia silenced by her husband this is a, a, a play where Bianca's silenced by Cassio so a, yeah. a ritualistic kind of silencing of women is taking place in this play and this scene kind of prefigures that that moment Absolutely. it's the first step isn't it and it's, it's interesting
1: that in this play is the women who are the ones who speak the truth
0: yeah and and that it follow and this immediately followed this is immediately preceded by that willow scene in act four where actually we have this kind of proto-feminist speech from Amelia telling us that men are stomachs and they consume us they belch us and we see this on stage now it's this kind of visceral realisation of Amelia's warnings isn't it yeah um, and it builds then towards this tragic moment, um, of, of an agnoresis when, uh, which is kind of when a, a character realises what they're really like, um, uh, or what's the, really the case. I, I put it on your sheets, but it's a, it's a key feature of tragedy. And of course the key, key moment of agnoresis, I was, uh, uh, is, is when Othello realises the truth and he's it's shortly to do that. Too late. Too late. <laughs> so that's As always the, in that's a the tragic irony of the scene, isn't it? That, that we see, we know Iago's machinations, we know what's happening, um, Uh, Othello thinks he does Desdemona's but ignorant but both Desdemona and Othello are ignorant in this scene they don't know the full picture Um, but we actually do and we're sat there helpless watching the tragedy unfold and that's what's disturbing isn't it thank you